we have been 26 weeks in the book, How We Got It and How to Get the Most Out of It. 26 weeks. Tonight we, uh, tonight we wrap that up, that study. And it's a text that is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. It fits so well with wrapping up this series. Down the road of time, when I preach my last sermon in this church, this will be my text, just so you know. I mean, don't just, you know, wait for, by the phone, but somewhere down the road, this will be my text. And just so you know what's going to happen, I was, I was just thinking about this in my office. I came in after the first course. So what's going to happen tonight is I'll get about two-thirds through, and then there'll be a big interruption in the middle with something I want to talk about. And then I'll either just say, take the last point, you can take it home and read it yourself, or we'll zip over it real quick. But just so you know, that, that's part of the plan, Okay. The title is, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Acts 20, 29 to 35. And of course, when we're looking at the book, how we got it, how to get the most out of it, that phrase, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, comes right out of the text, and it's the word of his grace. That kind of ties in the subject with this series. Acts 20, 29. Paul is the speaker, speaking to the church at Ephesus. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, So there'll be false teachers that will pull some people away. Disciples, they'll be pulled away. The word of his grace will will give you the inheritance. It It will take you all the way home. That's what he's saying. 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, we don't have this recorded from Jesus, we just know from Paul that he said it. It is more blessed to give than to receive. There's very few verses that I love more than Acts 20, 32 And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul, 
speaking to the elders, the leaders, the pastors at the church at Ephesus. I love that description of the Bible, the scriptures, as the word of the word of God's grace. There's an error. And there's a truth to remember. Here's the error. If I'm not really careful, I can easily link my Bible study more to duty than to grace. I know I should read my Bible, right? You've heard it since you were kids. If you grew up in Sunday school, I should read my Bible. I must read my Bible. And whenever there's... Whenever anything comes at me with that must-do kind of emphasis, well, if I do it really well, then I feel like I'm fulfilling an obligation. And if I don't do it well, then I feel guilt and condemnation. But either way, whether I did it really well and fulfilled my duty, or whether I did it poorly not consistently enough, not regularly enough, then I feel guilt and condemnation. But whether I feel I've accomplished it well or I've failed miserably, either way, what's missing there is this idea of, I love the grace that I received from the Word. In his law, I meditate day and night. I delight, Psalm 1. said there was both an error and a truth in that 32nd verse. The error, as you can see it, as an obligation. Here's the truth that needs to be protected. It's, it's that God's word, is a, God's word is a grace producer. Paul calls it the word of his grace, 32. So how much How much of God's helping, empowering grace do you need tomorrow? And my answer would be, if you're like me, quite a bit. Quite a bit. That's why God has given us the Bible. The Bible takes dirty lives and makes them clean. It takes fearful lives and it helps give them courage. It takes ugly lives and it helps make them beautiful. It takes disorganized lives and it gives them meaning and purpose. It takes discouraged lives and it makes them joyful. It takes lives all imprisoned and bound in sin and it emancipates them with divine freedom. So, this is the truth about the word of God's grace. Paul says he He commends these people. He commends these people, ties them closely, intimately, continuously to to the word of his grace. I I see two directions of activity in this text. We'll probably just deal more thoroughly with the first one. One is growing deep into the word of his grace. The other is reaching out with the word of his grace. And both of those are necessary in any church that's worth 
the name. We need to grow deep and deeper still into the word of his grace. And we need to be reignited by the spirit of God to reach out with the word of his grace. Look what, we, look what we're doing tonight. So we sing a couple songs, and then we, we open up our Bibles. Why do we do that? Well, because it's church, and you're supposed to have a sermon. And, and that comes very close to the kind of error Paul wants to address. So you're sitting here, and, and you're listening to this, but it's not like the first time. Does it, does it register for all of us that what, what God wants to do right now, right now, is push more grace into our lives. Push more of his strength, more of his help into our lives. So there's these two directions. We need to grow deep into the word of his grace. That's what we're going to look at first. We need to reach out. What we're exporting has to be tied to the word of his grace or we'll end up just doing humanitarian work. So first this, point number one, we need to grow deep Because there will be a constant flow of lies and deception against the truth of God's word. That part is in verses 29, 30, and 31. I hope you have a Bible of some kind. That Well, it's probably in your notes, right? In the notes. 29 to 31. Read it out loud with me. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's the last time Paul's going to speak to this church. Last time. You can read later on in verse 37 and 38. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful. Most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that that they would not see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship. Goodbye. Goodbye, Paul. And so, Paul's last words. What, What do you say? You have friends here tonight? Someone close to you? If you knew you were not going to see them again after this service. So you're not just saying goodbye till Wednesday. You're saying goodbye. And, and, and you, really, you really want to speak into their life because they mean a lot to you. What, what would you say? You, you, you think about your last words carefully. And, and Paul takes... One last kick at the can. He's nothing if not persistent. One last opportunity to repeat what he says he's been telling them with tears. Verse 31. He's going to say the same thing he said for three years. Why with tears? He he, he says that right in this church. He's not talking now about a secular media like we're familiar with. He's not talking about Hollywood. He's not talking about atheists. He, he says, right, right from in this church, he says. 
false teachers are going to arise. From, from within, from the inside, from, from professing followers of Christ, he says. Right in the church, there's going to arise teachings that will pull Christians away from the truth of the gospel. Paul says, he's been telling them that, verse 31, with tears. Why with tears? Because Paul, like any good pastor, knows this is one warning that the flock won't take seriously enough. He wept because he knew how hard it was to impress on people who are already saved, who know all the songs and know what's coming next in the church service. They've done it all before. Hard to impress those people just how urgently truth has to be guarded and studied and repeated and memorized and re-studied and re-treasured and re-devoured and then studied again and then digested again. The hard part is not, is not discovering truth. The hard part is holding on to truth. And, and, he, and he knows it's very hard to convince people of that. And he's weeping. weeping. People love miracles. They love hot worship bands. They love good lighting. They love big crowds. They love fellowship. They love projects. But they can quickly develop the idea that because they know the truth of the gospel, that they will automatically remain unshakable and firm in the gospel. And it's just not so. It's not so for me. Not so for you. And so one more time, Paul comes to these dear saints. Verse 32, I, I commend you to the word of his grace. That word commend, paratithemi is the Greek word. And it means to, it means to, um, to lay right alongside with no gaps. Have you ever tried to put caulking along a window. I see people that know how to do it and, it and it looks like the easiest thing in the world to do. And whenever I try to do it, I mean, there's stuff on the window, there's stuff on my pants, there's stuff. But it's just a tight right alongside. That's what he means. I commend you to the word of his grace. Or think of, you, you, lay, a, you lay a ruler down. And you've got a pen, and you put the pen right against the ruler, and you run it down the page. But you don't go out here. You keep the pen touching the ruler, running it right down, right down the ruler. That's, that's the meaning of that word, I commend you. He chooses it really carefully. We lay our lives not in some one-time religious act of conversion, Hour by hour, moment by moment, day by day, we, we lie them right alongside the word of his grace. There's no gap. The reason is, 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So there's, there's two reasons. One is really obvious and one isn't as obvious. I'm going to start with the less obvious reason. 
they, they, he commends them to the word of his grace. The less obvious reason for abiding in the word of God's grace is that only abiding continually brings God's eternal inheritance into our lives. I'm not making it up. It's in verse 32. Look at it. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the, the inheritance is, is still to come. But w- what exactly is it? Let me read some verses to you real fast. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna take tons of time here. Where the inheritance is referred to. Are all these in your notes, these references? Okay. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard, heard the word of truth. See the same thing about the word? The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So do we have possession of it? Well, yes. Yes. But, but no, not, not fully. You don't have a resurrection body. Colossians 3, 23, 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that it is from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. He says it's kept in heaven for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, there's other references. You put them all together, and you see that the inheritance is full entrance into the final phase of the kingdom of God. And we see that unbelief and sin, they keep people from obtaining the inheritance. The inheritance is entered into, but not fully received yet. And here's the point. Paul says that the complete delivery of the inheritance is brought about by abiding in Continuing in the word of his grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Look at it. Which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance. In other words, it's not merely some past experience with the word of his grace. Paul is talking about the ongoing power of divine grace manifested by abiding in the word of God's grace that brings the inheritance. My, my, life, my life is to be so shaped by the word of God's grace today that it causes me to hate sin today, that it causes me to love the truth today, that it causes me to embrace holiness today, and it causes me to resist temptation today. That's, that's the way Paul talks about commending people to the word of his grace. He says it'll build you up. It's a building project. It's, it's, it's my life constantly being constructed and not finished yet. And the key to that project being completed is the word of his grace. Everything hinges on it. 
It's always in process. The word is constantly constructing. It never arrives fully in some static, complete way. So that's, you see, the first reason for caution in the face of a world's system that is organized, structured, to push against your love for the word of his grace. And we're not immune to it. Not one of us. That's why I need this, this picture, you see. Paul committing these elders. These are the pastors. These are the leaders. Commending them to the word of his grace now in the present tense. And now, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able right now to build you up and give you the inheritance. So that's the less obvious reason. It's a continual building, constructing process. God's grace is not static. It, it constantly works as we stay in the word of his grace. The second reason is the one you can see. The second reason Paul does this with these leaders is there will be increasing tolerance of false teaching in the church of Jesus Christ. And if you don't think this hits the mark today, I don't know where you live. Not in the world. There will be increasing tolerance for false teaching in the church of Jesus Christ. From among your own selves will arise. I know that after my departure, 29, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. You don't know anything about the spirit of the age until you know that the spirit of the age works in the church to make the church more open to false teaching. That's what he does in the church. The spirit of the age never leaves truth alone. He never lets it go unchallenged. The spirit of the age constantly posits counter-arguments. He dulls the sharp edge of truth. So the, the word of God's grace is always a threatened church in the body of Christ. Always. Interesting. Paul says that this is going to happen. You see verse 29? I know that after my departure, after my departure, fierce wolves will arise. Now why not till then? because well, Paul's there. And, and what, what you need to notice there, and it isn't just because it's Paul, never underestimate the power of any voice unafraid to proclaim truth from God's word. But once Paul is gone, leaders will arise in the church and, and they will teach ideas that... that that sound tolerant, but will be like, he says, ravenous wolves. Those aren't my, my terms. So 
So whenever false ideas defeat truth, get a picture of the fangs of wolves. False teaching is never tolerant. It's never kind. It, it tears tender flesh from the bones of God's children. Okay, now I'm going to, as I said, I have this quote I want to read to you. This was part of the teaching tonight, and then I want to read you something that isn't. I didn't write down, and I should have. I can find out for you where I got this quote from John Piper. But he talks about the most common trait in the teaching of wolves in today's church. He's talking about this passage of Scripture. Listen to what he says. Is this in your notes, by the way? No, eh? Okay, because it's kind of a long quote. This is Piper, quote, Let me mention one feature to watch out for in the recognition of wolves in the church. As I have watched the movement from biblical faithfulness to liberalism in persons and in... He doesn't mean political liberalism. He's talking about uh, uh, license and a justification of sin. That kind of liberalism he's talking about. Not whether you're a conservative or liberal or NDP. You all understand that, right? As I have watched the movement from biblical faithfulness to liberalism in persons and institutions that I have known over the years, this feature stands out. An emotional disenchantment with faithfulness to what is old and fixed. And an emotional preoccupation with what is new or fashionable or relevant in the eyes of the world. Let me try to say it another way. When this feature is prevalent, you don't get the impression that a person really longs to bring his heart and mind into conformity to fixed biblical truth. Instead, you see the desire to picture biblical truth as fluid, indefinable, distant, inaccessible, open to the trends of the day. So what marks a possible wolf in the making is not simply that he rejects any particular biblical truth, <coughs> Excuse me, but that he isn't deeply oriented on the Bible. He is more oriented on experience. He isn't captured by the great faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's enamored by what's new and what's innovative. Let me just get a drink of water. How many of you have heard of uh, the Nashville Statement? Yeah. Uh, predominantly, John Piper headed it up. You can go on our website under resources, and you'll see the Nashville Statement. You can click on it. You can read it. It's a good statement. I say Piper, I think, initiated it. I don't know that for a fact, but there's hundreds of really uh, amazingly significant signatories to that statement dealing with marriage sexual relations before marriage and outside of marriage transgenderism uh, same-sex relationships and uh, as soon as it came out the response from the church this is the thing and it made me think of this text the response from people in the church and the, and the name-calling 
homophobic, hate mongers, neo-Nazis, you know, just, just ridiculous things that get said. This is, this is from in the church. Rosaria Butterfield, who is brilliant. So she, uh, why I signed the Nashville Statement. When I read that quote, the one I read to you by Piper, where he says it's not one thing only, it's, it's, a, view that, it's a view that keeps the Bible in a state of flux so it accommodates the direction of the culture, okay? That, that's his thesis. That's what Piper is saying. That's what makes a wolf in the church. And I was thinking about the number of, of predominant, really predominant, sort of contemporary church leaders who, who um, I'm debating now, do I name? That's not my point. Someone will say, oh, you're just dividing. And I don't, that's not my point. But there are uh, contemporary church leaders, I'll say that, who go down this direction. So you can go to, to uh, a, a pretty predominant contemporary church where in the church you'll have statements against, statements against homosexuality and at the same time Bible studies for... Uh, married, same-sex couples in the church. And the way it works is this. Um, They will say things like this. You need to understand that the Bible, Romans 1, these kinds of texts, 1 Corinthians, when it talks about homosexuality, it had no understanding of what we today would call uh, loving, monogamous, homosexual marriage. All that Paul knew about would be abusive homosexual relationships, pedophilia, rape, and, and uh, cult uh, sexual acts in pagan temples. And, and so, of course, when the New Testament writes about homosexuality, it's against it. They'll say that. But that's because they couldn't frame homosexuality the way we frame it today. And so, in, it, it's what's well, in Bruxy's church. And, and he'll say, those texts, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, against homosexuality stand. They're God's word. But if you're a gay couple, married, the texts that apply to you aren't Romans 1. The texts that apply to you are anything in the Bible about marriage. Because now you have homosexual marriage. They didn't have that in Paul's time. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so this is a marriage, and you treat the text of marriage and apply that to this gay couple once they're married. Which, which to me is, I don't know how to say it more strongly than this, that is, that is exactly opposite. It's not just a little off. That is exactly opposite of the way we're to take the ethical teaching of the scriptures. In other words, we don't take the ethical teaching of the scriptures and shape them by the realities that we see in our culture. What we do is we take the realities that we see in our culture and we measure them by the absolute revelation of the scriptures. 
So they've taken it and precisely flipped it upside down. You don't say, well, there wasn't marriage then. Now that there's marriage, every reference in the Bible about homosexuality is negative. No one can argue with that. And they know they can't argue with that, so there's a better solution. Those texts about homosexuality don't apply to gay marriage. Texts about marriage apply to gay marriage. And you see what you did? I am unabashedly an admirer of Rosaria Butterfield. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I hesitated because it's a little bit... Can you handle if I read like about two pages? Here's her st- why I signed the Nashville Statement. And we all, I won't keep you late. We'll wrap up. The issue is not primarily homosexuality. It's the scripture. The issue is not primarily gay marriage. It's whether the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The issue is not whether people are good-intentioned and sincere in desiring things that God forbids. The issue is whether we all bear the sin of Adam, inheriting an unchosen moral deformity an energy of opposition to God, a rebellion that bequeaths to us a sin nature that we cannot erase on our own terms or by our own hands. The issue is whether Jesus rose from the grave, is alive today, whether his blood and love and resurrection make any whit of difference in how you fight the original sin that distorts you, the actual sin that distracts you, the indwelling sin that manipulates you. The issue is whether you can trust the Bible to tell you who you are, who God is, and which way is up. Listen, 20 years ago I lived as a lesbian. I delighted in my lover. Our home on one of the Finger Lakes, our golden retrievers, and our careers. When Christ claimed me for his own, I did not stop feeling like a lesbian. I did not fall out of love with women right away. I was not converted out of homosexuality, but I was converted out of unbelief. Conversion to Christ did not initially change my sexual attraction for women. What conversion did change immediately was my heart and mind. My mind was on fire for the Bible. I could not read enough of it or enough about it. The gospel gave me a light that was ruinous. It ruined me for the life I had loved. The Lord's light illumined my sin through the law and illumine my hope through Jesus Christ and the gospel. The gospel destroyed me before the Lord built me back up. In saying yes to Jesus and no through the desires of my flesh, I learned that the only way to peace with God was through the cross. The one that Jesus died on and the one that he called me with his help to carry. In this crucible, I wondered how this could be so. How could that which I loved so much be sin? How could I hate my sin without hating myself? How could I both hate my sin and feel drawn to it simultaneously? Listen to this paragraph. I learned that sin does not lose its character as sin just because I loved it. That's a brilliant sentence. I learned 
Sin does not lose its character as sin just because I loved it. I learned that my homosexuality was a logical consequence of the fall of man, the thumbprint of original sin on some of us. It is true that some of us are born this way. It is also true that we are all born in sin one way or another. And we can hate our sin without hating ourselves because we who have committed our lives to Christ stand in his righteousness and not our own. Listen to this. Our real identity is not in the sin we battle, but in the Savior we embrace. That's a greatly crafted sentence. Christ's salvation is definitive and decisive. Christ rescues his people, growing us in union with Christ, establishing us in God's family, the church, and setting us apart to bear the image of God in knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. We gain more than we lose when we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, but pick up our cross we must. And for many of us, our cross demands forsaking the sexual sin that calls us by name. Um... Can I read a bit more? We live now in a world that has no use for the God of the Bible, for Jesus, the Savior of his people and the world. The terms are shifting quickly. Calling people like me to forsake sexual sin is no longer considered a first step toward walking with Jesus in liberty and new life. Today, some influential people who claim to know Christ no longer believe that God hates this sin. Sin is in the eyes of the beholder, they say. Just a few years ago, these people blamed sin on the devil, saying, the devil made me do it. Now these same people, some of them leaders in the church, blame sin on the Holy Spirit, declaring that he is blessing what the Bible condemns. In a few short years, blame shifting has morphed into blasphemy, and this blasphemy is coming from people who claim to have Christ's salvation and from pulpits and blogs that they wield. When blasphemy comes from the church, the Bible gives us ways to understand how prophets become lions and wolves. 1 Peter 5.8 issues the warning for today's church climate. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Matthew 7.15 shows us what to do. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Christian fruit grows you in holiness, like Christ. Christian fruit grows you in grace, which is bought by the blood of Christ, the ransom price for my sin and yours. Grace leads you to love and desire the moral law of God and not to manipulate it and not to despise it. Christian fruit has no measure but the word of God. I sign the Nashville Statement because I stand with biblical orthodoxy, which is inseparable from God's creation mandate and definition of gendered personhood, found in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The soul is God's fingerprint on humanity, but the gendered body, essentially and ontologically male or female, will also, for the believer in Jesus Christ, be glorified and resurrected in the new Jerusalem. I sign the Nashville Statement because my conscience compels me to do so, because the promises of liberty on the world's terms are false and deceptive, and because many who currently claim to have Christ's forgiveness and salvation must be called to account 
for leading good people astray with false promises and filthy lies. I sign the Nashville Statement because the wolves are prowling in the church and the lions are roaring in the church and because they are bold and proud of their heresy and you must be warned. By God, through the merit and power of Jesus Christ, here I stand. That's a good statement. That's a good statement. Paul says, I, for three years I wept, telling you that I've been your teacher and I'm not the last teacher you're going to hear. And there are going to be lots of other teachers that will arise up in the church and they're going to start leading you astray. And I'm weeping because I'm not sure you're going to be careful enough. And uh, I get emails all the time. You should see some of the things I get called. People see online, I've preached on homosexuality. I've preached on 51 shades of gender. I've preached on all those things, sexual orientation in the Bible. And it used to be when you did that, people outside the church, you understand that. But this isn't from outside the church anymore. It's the church. It's the church. And you're just seeing a fulfillment of those words of what Paul said. The wolves are prowling, church. I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you that inheritance among the saints. Everyone sad? Let's pray.